Ladies and gentlemen, you are now tuned in to the advent of a political black man podcast with your host, DJ John. I've been A1 since day one, you niggas boo-boo. Your own boy, your black that you're from, boo-boo. Little hoes you went to school with, boo-boo. Baby mama and your new bitch, boo-boo. We was in the hood, 14 with the deuce-deuce. 14 years later, going hard like we used to on the dead homies. On the dead homies. What's good, my people? Welcome to another episode of the Advent of a Political Black Man, and I am your host, DJ John. Uh, First, I'd like to take the time to apologize for my extended absence from producing episodes in a timely manner. Um, With the burdens of law school, I've been stretched very thin, and I didn't want to, you know, rush in making episodes, but I do think I've come up with a solution to get quality episodes out for y'all in a timely manner. And I also had to just put on for the last day of Black History Month of 2022. So on this episode, I'm introducing a new segment that I'll be continuing for the remainder of this podcast, however long that lasts, called Learn Black History. And to give y'all a bit of a backstory, the reason why I created this podcast in the first place was that I had come to get involved in political and social activism very early in my undergraduate years at UC Irvine. And I also studied political science and went about my education through a lens of politics that affect underprivileged communities in my own community, namely the black community. So because of all of this, I realized that I had a lot of historical knowledge that not many people had simply because I spent four years doing that research. So I decided the best way to share some of that knowledge and perspective was to was through short episodes that people could listen to at their own time via this podcast. And what this new segment seeks to do is to focus specifically on certain historical events throughout black history that I believe to be important as it pertains to black to the black community at large and to better help understand how even though history seems to be ever changing on its surface, the sentiment behind it still remains the same. So today, my first story is going to be about the tragic story of Nat Turner. To get started, Nat Turner was born on October 2nd in the year 1800 in Southampton County, Virginia. He was born into into slavery on a small plantation in this remote area of Virginia, and his slave master was a well-known wealthy farmer named Benjamin Turner. And when Benjamin died a few years later, Nat Turner was included in the inheritance to Benjamin's son, Samuel Turner. Now, I will add a caveat at this point because some sources do say that Samuel was Benjamin's younger brother and not his son, but that's ultimately irrelevant. Going back to the story, in his early years, Nat Turner learned to read, which was highly uncommon for slaves, and he was put into intense religious training under the Christian faith. And throughout his childhood, Nat Turner would mesmerize his fellow slaves and eventually even his owners and their colleagues through his ability to describe events that happened before he was born. Turner even preached to his fellow slaves and read Bible passages to them, and this led to Turner being given the nickname of the prophet. These events also weren't the extent of Turner's religious endeavors, as Turner was often seen praying, fasting, and studying the Bible, was, you know, which was all he sought to do. And Turner also had frequent visions that would depict many abstract or divine images. And one vision was described as a bloody conflict between white and black people. And another was described as a message to him to lead the charge against satanic forces. 
Now, as you can already tell, this is not an easy thing for somebody to handle, especially while being in your 20s and also experiencing the hell that was colonial slavery. In 1821, when Turner was only 21 years old, he managed to escape from the plantation that he was on, and he lived in the wilderness for a month until one of his, again, recurring visions compelled him to return to the plantation. And the vision was described to compel him to, quote, return to the services of his earthly master. And when Turner came back, he was described as being delirious from hunger, and some attribute this hunger to his frequent fasting. At this point, Turner was now working under Thomas More, and this is because Samuel Turner eventually passed away, and Nat Turner was sent to work on Thomas More's land. Now, while working as a slave again, Turner began to have more visions. In 1825, Nat Turner began to see more visions of conflicts between white and black people, and he had another vision in which he said, quote, The Savior was about to lay down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men, and the great day of judgment was at hand, end quote. These visions kept on coming, and by the spring of 1828, Turner had been convinced that God had ordained him for a special purpose. On May 12th of 1828, Turner had be began working on the field in Moore's plantation and had another vision, which he described that there was a loud noise in the heavens, and the Spirit appeared to him and told him that the time had come when the last shall be the first and the first shall be the last. Now, Joseph Dries, a popular author, wrote, In connecting this vision to the motivation for his rebellion, Turner makes it clear that he sees himself as participating in the confrontation between God's kingdom and the anti-kingdom that characterized the social-historical context. He was convinced that God had given him the task of slaying his enemies with their own weapons. So, I want to pause for a moment here and discuss exactly what's going on so far in this story. So to summarize, here is a man born into slavery, and it seems like the trauma from his condition gets to him at a very early age, and this seems to be due to the fact that he understands his plight at a very early age. Nat Turner also seems to be a rather brilliant human being, as he is able to teach himself to read at a very young age. And there's this, also this weird story where he manages to escape at the age of 21 and ends up returning not because he got caught, but because his visions compel him to return and complete the work he believes he's destined to accomplish. And that's really what's at the crux of this analysis, is that these visions that Turner has, and, and this is the part of the podcast episode where I, I say that I understand not every one of my listeners are spiritual. And even among those who are, there are different levels of spirituality that some people are willing to cross. I personally classify myself as a spiritual person, However, there are some accounts that I'm skeptical of, and I got to tell you, this is one of those accounts, primarily because of the context in which some of these visions had occurred. Now, Turner was described as being hungry and delirious, and it's been well established from numerous medical studies that extreme medical hunger can, or extreme hunger, I'm sorry, can trigger psychosis. Nonetheless, not all of these visions occurred while he experienced, experienced said hunger, so who knows? I'm a firm believer in the notion that God speaks through people, whether that be through his word, uh, through dreams, or through visions. But these visions are consistent in their depictions. They're described as conflicts between white and black people, 
religious signs, and voices that quote biblical text. And that's referring to the quote about the last being the first and the first being the last. So let's talk specifically about this line, which can mean a couple things. So in the Bible, Jesus made this comment twice, once as a statement of fact, and the other time as a statement of illustration. The first time in Matthew chapter 9, verses 16 through 30, Jesus encounters a rich young man and asks him to give up all his wealth to follow him. The young man refuses and leaves Jesus as he's unable to part ways with his great wealth. Now the disciples subsequently asked what reward they would have in heaven since they gave up everything to follow Jesus, to which Jesus responds with a hundred times as much as they gave plus eternal life. He then made the comment that when that happens, the first will be the last and the last will be the first. Jesus reiterated this comment as an illustration when he gave a parable about, a vi- about vineyard workers who were hired at different times to work in a vineyard. Those who worked longer believed that they would get paid more than those who worked for shorter times. However, they were surprised when the vineyard owner paid them all the same wages. And Jesus made the comment again that the last will be the first and the first will be the last. So what exactly does this mean? Because this is what's going to be our pivot into the next part of this story. Essentially, in these Bible verses, Jesus is trying to make the point that in heaven, earthly measures are not used to determine the quality of man. Normally, we classify people based on their status as indicated by their wealth, material possessions, and occupation. Normally, those who have more of these things are regarded as those at the top of our society. And I think Jesus was trying to say that many times, these are the people who are unable to truly follow him because of their lack of their ability to part ways with these possessions. And those who don't have much of these things many times don't run into that issue and have an easier time to part ways with their possessions and follow Jesus. And that's because of those who are normally regard and that's because these are the people who are normally regarded as the last on earth, and they will be regarded in the first in the eyes of God. And of those who are normally regarded as the first on earth will be regarded as last in the eyes of God. Now, how does this all tie into Nat Turner? Well, in this story, it's pretty easy to deduce that those who are the last, or, or it's pretty easy to deduce those who are the last and those who are the first. And as stated through the biblical antidote, many times the first are regarded as the rich and those who have, and the last are regarded as the poor and those without. In Turner's time, during the antebellum era and subsequent, subsequently after, Those who were rich were the slave owners and owned large plots of land, and the slaves themselves were the poor ones. Now it's starting to become evidently clear, at least to me, that that what Nat Turner was talking about when quoting Jesus about the first and the last was that the first, which were the slave owners, would become the last, and that the last, who were the slaves, would become the first. Now, in biblical context, Jesus is talking about what happens in heaven where God rules supreme and is able to make this decision. However, in Nat Turner's context, as a black man and as a slave, he does not have the power to make this happen. So there's only one way for him to accomplish this goal of the vision, and that's through rebellion. So to turn back to the facts of this story, in 1831, Nat Turner was sold again as a slave, and this time it was to a man named Joseph Travis. And in February of that year, A solar eclipse had occurred, and Turner took this as a sign which meant that it was the time to rise up, and he secretly planned a rebellion led by him and four other slaves. They recruited about 75 enslaved people, and on August 21, 1831, 
Turner, along with the mob, murdered their slave master, his wife, and their child. They managed to secure arms and horses and murdered many of the white citizens in the town. Women and children were also killed, and while there is no definitive total of the casualties, many estimates put the casualties at around 55 white people. Initially, Turner had planned to reach the county seat of Jerusalem and take over the armory there, but he and his men were foiled in this plan as they faced off against a group of armed white men at a plantation near Jerusalem, and the conflict soon dissolved into chaos and Turner himself fled into the woods. And while Turner hid, white mobs took their revenge on the black people of Southampton County, and estimates range approximately from 100 to 200 African Americans who were slaughtered after the rebellion. And, you know, I just have to point back to the fact that there were only 75 at most who were part of this rebellion. And that's assuming all of them had survived after the chaos subsided, which is likely not the case. Nat Turner was found on October 30th, 1831, and was ultimately sentenced to death by hanging. His sentence was carried out on November 11th, 1831, and sources say that many of his co-conspirators also met the same fate. And this incident put fear in a lot of the Southerners, and it ended the organized emancipation movement in that region. Southern states passed harsh laws against the slaves, and Turner's actions also added fuel to the abolitionist movement in the North. So here's the reason why I wanted to start off with this story, and it's because even though this happened almost 200 years ago now, many of the underlying principles are still relevant to this very day, and here's what I mean by that. Whether you choose to believe that Nat Turner actually saw these visions or actually received them as signs from God or some divine encounter is ultimately for you to decide. There's no way for me to be pragmatic to this kind of audience in that regard, but what I can articulate for you is this. Nat Turner was born a slave and lived as a slave for most of his life. And according to a book called Historical Times Illustrated, Encyclopedia of the Civil War, Husbands, wives, and children were frequently sold away from one another, and punished by whipping was not unusual either. Additionally, women were raped, children were drowned, and men were lynched and mutilated for anything that could be seen as a rebellion. And even when African Americans tried to rely on the law, the law did not come through for them, i.e. the Dred Scott case where the Supreme Court ruled that all black people, whether free or enslaved, lacked the rights to citizenship and thus could not sue in court. The Supreme Court also took their decision a step further by deeming that Congress had in fact exceeded its authority in the earlier Missouri Compromise because it had no power to forbid or abolish slavery in territories. The Supreme Court also ruled that popular sovereignty, where new territories could vote on entering the Union as a free or slave state, lacked constitutional legitimacy. Thus, slave had, slaves had no legal means to protest their treatment. And of course, these decisions were ultimately overturned by the 14th Amendment, but this is the point. And it's that nowadays, though we don't have the physically harsh treatment that slaves in 1831 went through, Black people are still suffering institutional racism at the hands of the government entities such as the police or people who have deputized themselves to act like the police. For example, George Zimmerman who murdered Trayvon Martin in 2012 and the three men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery back in 2020. Many of these murders happen in the most egregious fashions and to be honest with you guys, I still think about Philando Castile in Minneapolis who was shot seven times and some of those shots being fired after he was already dead while his girlfriend and infant daughter were in the car with him. 
And while I'm in law school, what we're taught is that in the profession, and the system that we're in brings more order into society, meaning that we don't have to solve our problems with violence, but we have a court advocacy system where we can settle matters and dispute in, in a civilized manner. But what happens when that system has historically been adversarial towards your community? I don't assume that Nat Turner knew all of these decisions made by the Supreme Court, but there's no way it ever crossed Turner's mind that he could solve all his problems by suing in court and getting his fellow slaves some kind of compensation for the harsh treatment they suffered. And I also know it's, it's probably hard to wrap your head around the fact that he led such a violent insurrection where so many people were killed, but let me turn the narrative to you this way by presenting you with these facts. In 1999, the country was shocked by a school shooting that took place at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. And many who have researched these shootings attribute the tragic incident to the two students being bullied immensely by their peers. Now, just to add a caveat, I'm not trying to advocate that what these students did was in any way, shape, or form justified. I just want you to pay attention to the response to this shooting. Because this incident prompted many preventative measures to stop bullying in schools nationwide so that we would never have to experience something like this again. In my high school, in fact, while I was a senior, we had a young boy take his own life because he was bullied. And since then, the school had intensified their effort to prevent bullying so that an incident never occurs again. In fact, we had what's called Respect, Peace, and Tolerance Day, where we took a whole day off of learning curriculum, right? You didn't go to any of your classes, and for the entire day, all you did was learn measures to respect and learn about each other and, you know, in, in order to prevent bullying on our campus. And what I'm trying to get y'all to understand is that in these situations, it presented such an emergency that people felt compelled to deal with the root cause of the problem specifically. Because if you cut out the issue at its core, the reactions that follow are likely to go with it. Now, I mentioned in a previous video on my profile that Dr. King once said, a riot is the language of the unheard, meaning that no one wakes up one day and decides to set things on fire or in Nat Turner's case, lead an insurrection. It's caused by numerous attempts to get help for an urgent matter, but it falls on deaf ears. Nowadays, people refer to social justice activists as rioters and looters. But let me ask you, do you think that at this point, there may be just maybe a reason that someone could be driven so far to such anger and such violence? And if they are, maybe there's something that our society is either failing to understand or just purposely refusing to pay attention to. That's a question that I will leave you to ask yourself. And with that being said, I will conclude this episode of the advent of a political black man. And to stay up to date on commentary regarding more social and political issues, give me a follow on Instagram at Jonicus underscore, that's J-O-H-N-I-C-U-S underscore, and like it and subscribe to follow the channel or on whatever platform you're using, whether that be Spotify or Apple Music. And if you have any questions, please send an email to aopbmpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's aopbmpodcast at gmail.com. Have a great rest of your day. Remember to stay safe. And of course, God bless. I've been a one since day one. You niggas boo-boo. Your own boy, you black that you're from. Boo-boo. Little hoes you went to school with. Boo-boo. Baby mama and your new bitch. Boo-boo. We was in the hood. 14 with the deuce deuce. 14 years later, gone hard.